This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we turn our attention to spirituality and religion in Latin America. We'll discuss the growing popularity of Santeria. And we'll also find out about a Mexican folk saint that's become a symbol of the drug war. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Hurricane Sandy careened across the Caribbean this week before heading northward, perhaps toward the United States. The Category 2 hurricane killed at least 21 people. Half of those victims died in Cuba. Cuba military spokesperson Jorge Cuevas spoke about the storm. In general, general, it appears the national, regional, and local defense forces have responded to the storm. Predictions are the storm will threaten the U.S. East Coast in the next week. A top United Nations official criticized the U.S. Border Patrol for using excessive force along the Mexican border. The UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, said too many young people have been killed at the border by U.S. officers. Pillay made these statements a week after U.S. officers fatally shot a 16-year-old boy they say was throwing rocks at them near the border town of Nogales, Arizona. One of the biggest issues facing Latin America is the growing crime rate. Recently, the U.S. State Department met with Latin American human rights activists for a day of panels to discuss ways to help combat this growing threat. Although many solutions have been proposed, the most controversial has been the U.S. military's training of police officers. Jordan Derry has this story. At the conference in Washington, D.C., members of the U.S. State Department argued that the military training of law enforcement officials is beneficial to reducing crime. Diplomats cited the effectiveness of training in helping law enforcement better handle violent criminals. Other participants in the discussion, such as human rights activist Helen Mack, disagree with this method. Max says this philosophy causes police officers to treat citizens like enemies. But military are training policemen, and there is a contradiction, because their doctrine is very different from the police. So, as for the military, enemy has to be destroyed, police has to protect citizens. And so many times they see, obviously, citizens as enemies. But for the police, is to protect us, but they see us also as enemy. All agreed that police reform is needed, but they said other factors are important too, such as government social programs, health care, and education. Such measures would help keep youth gangs off the streets and raise the standard of living throughout Latin America. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jordan Derry. In a 17-14 to 14 vote, Uruguay's Senate passed a bill this week legalizing abortion, joining Cuba as one of the two countries in Latin America where abortion is legal. Uruguayan President Jose Mejica supports the bill and says he'll sign it into law. However, the bill is not without its critics. Some opponents are moving to gain signatures for a referendum that will allow the public to vote against the measure. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. We begin this week with Santeria, the religion with origins in the Afro-Cuban community that dates to the slave era in the Caribbean. The religion blends West African traditions with influences from Christianity. Santeria is practiced in a dialect called Lukumi, and some believe the religion now more than challenges Christian religions for followers in Cuba. We went to the office of Michael Atwood Mason in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. to learn more 
about Santeria. You are the author of Living Santeria, and I'm guessing that the book gets its title from your own personal experience. Certainly to some extent it does. I've been involved in the religion for more than 25 years, but it's also meant to draw attention to the fact that this is a tradition that's very much alive and that many people enter whether they're born into it or whether they join the tradition and it becomes a a real sense of vitality a real sense a real source of vitality in their lives Uh, that vitality is part of what i was trying to communicate santeria as its own thing lukumia religion as its own thing evolves is incredibly complicated it happens over 500 years there are waves of influences at different times. You know, the spiritism that's kind of now completely a part of the tradition only arrived in Cuba in probably the 1850s or the 1860s. So it's a relatively new thing. Um, on the other hand, there are very old strands that run through the religion that continue to be very much alive and, and when a, a, a powerfully kind of influential and charismatic leader from that tradition appears, those those traditions can be revitalized in very interesting and dramatic ways. Uh, and some of those are, are you know, there's there's a, an Arara movement that's coming, uh, that's, that's re-emerging in a very powerful way right now, uh, in large part because there's this incredibly dynamic, socially smart, uh, culturally informed, and dynamic guy uh, who's leading the movement. <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing happens all the time. So it's it, it, to just kind of focus on Catholicism. Is, is he leading seems, the movement in Cuba, in the United States? Where, where is this he's, coming he's, from? He's located in, in Havana, but he has ties to Matanzas City, um, and he, he has godchildren all over the world. Can you tell us a little bit about what the appeal is of this religion globally? That's a great question, and it's a question that people ask over and over again, and there's not a single answer to that, but I think it's useful to think about a whole variety of things that the religion offers to people. For many people, it's a, it's a, about legacy and about family and about tradition. In, of course, in Afro-Cuban families, there, there are many people who every ancestor that they know was involved in the religion. That's one kind of very deep relationship to to the tradition, which is which is beautiful and and quite important for those people. I guess the other thing that I think is really important to think about is the fact that this is a a religion that focuses on nature, and the, that focus on nature is very important for a lot of people in the tradition, precisely because we're experiencing this massive environmental upheaval at this moment, and so acknowledging the power of nature in people's lives is something that the religion does quite well, and I think that resonates quite broadly. In what you just talked about deals with animism. And so I'm, I'm really wondering about the animistic roots of Santeria. Well, I'm not sure I would call it animism. Um, I guess I would skew that term because it's such a problematic and historically loaded term. Santeria conceives of a, a whole variety of forces that can be seen in the outer world, in nature, in the social world, in certain kinds of phenomena like kingship, like motherhood, uh, like romance, and also in the inner life of people. 
this is another thing about the tradition which makes it really attractive to people. It's it creates a kind of unified field for people to live in, and so deep inner experience can be very fluidly connected to outer experiences. Um, philosophy is another real draw. This is a tradition that is incredibly rich. Um, I have on my Apple computer a compendium that was put together by elders in Cuba that's literally 1800 pages long of stories, proverbs, traditional advice that's connected to the divination system. This is unbelievably rich. That doesn't document the whole tradition. But it, it's a so very, is it more of an oral tradition? It, it's than actually a written tradition? It's, it's a very fluid movement back and forth between the oral and the written. Um, so there are there are certainly oral sources that have never been documented, and there is a great deal of literature that's been developed over the last hundred and fifty years about the tradition. But that rich philosophy draws in a whole other group of people because it is so unbelievably complicated and the richness of the concepts and the way in which those ideas uh, interact with one another, but then also are translated into social action and ritual is incredibly powerful. Social action. How do you see that specifically? The, The most obvious kinds of social action are around rituals and ceremonies where people come together in a group and, and will enact a ceremony for a very particular reason based on divination or some other kind of revelation and they 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 bring that out and they share that and that that becomes in many cases a really significant experience in a person's life Um, and it can be a transformational experience for that individual but it's also this incredible experience of community if you are if you're sick and a group of people that you've known and lived with for five or ten years or your whole life comes together to try and heal you and that's successful that's a bond that you all share that doesn't go away quickly Uh, a colleague of mine and I were talking yesterday another colleague who's both a a scholar and a a priestess and she said these are threads that can't be cut and I think there's great truth in that. And I think we should underline that for our listeners that, that you're not just a practitioner, you are a priest of this religion. Yes. So this is important, this definition of social action, because what you described is, is really community building and healing. And I don't think that that's always how people would, would see um, that term used, especially when we talk about this religion being popular in Cuba. Um, so the idea is, how is that expressed in Cuba or in Latino populations in the U.S.? Or even in your writings, you point out that this is becoming a much more popular religion in Europe, too. So the religion is passed down in religious families or houses, most traditionally in, in the Cuban tradition. And, and there are, I should say, Cuba is only one place where Orishas are worshipped. There, There's a very strong tradition in Brazil. There's a strong tradition in Trinidad and, of course, in Nigeria and Benin, where the where the tradition has its its deepest roots. And do we also see this in Colombia, too? Oh, sorry. In Colombia, there's a lot of it. And in Venezuela, there's an enormous population these days. It's probably growing fastest in Venezuela at the moment. Um, Social action 
community building, healing, these are essential parts of what goes on. The the religion, as I said, in the, in the Lukumi tradition, as the Cuban tradition is called, in Lukumi, the religion is passed down through families, through religious families in what are called houses. And a person chooses an elder to be their godparent, and that godparent leads them as a guide on their spiritual path toward their own unfolding. Uh, the words in Cuban are, are in Cuban Spanish are evolution or uh, development, evolución, uh, or, or desarrollo, or desarrollamiento is actually what people often say. That that idea of unfolding of development is is really key, and the elders that you choose lead you down that path and as in many religions the path the road the journey are, are very powerful metaphors in the tradition so you're creating these very tight social bonds um, and like all social bonds they uh, you have some that are very strong and and enduring at an obvious level and others that get broken um, my colleague was really talking about a, a spiritual connection that's impossible to break. Why do you think that this religion gets stereotyped? And, and what do you say to people who tend to stereotype? Uh, those are two very difficult and different questions, I think. The why has to do with a lot of the practices. Obviously, people uh, in the United States are uh, increasingly distant from food production. So the idea of killing animals is... Uh, very upsetting for many people, whereas 50 years ago even, I think a, a, an enormous number of people had killed a chicken in their life um, so that they could eat it. And that difference plays into long-standing stereotypes um, uh, about, uh, about voodoo and about other kinds of practices that people don't know about and, uh, and therefore are afraid of. I think that's really what it comes down to. It's a, it's a, it's a fear of the unknown, and what I say is actually, usually, is to invite people to come and get to know people who are involved in the religion. I mean, um, my mother is a devout Episcopalian, but when my daughter was born and we had a naming ceremony for her, my mother came because this was her granddaughter and she didn't want to miss it, and these are perfectly normal universal kinds of things that people do right they welcome children into the family they celebrate their arrival uh, they reaffirm social bonds at those key moments that's what we do in the religion it's just a different set of uh, a different series of ways of expressing those rites of passage um, certainly our form of worship also uh, is surprising to some folks because it includes spirit possession um, this is something that that you know in ritual contexts we welcome because it it represents a kind of um, a, a, it's a blessing and so people seek it when it's appropriate and it's not to say that it's appropriate all the time it's circumscribed by ritual contexts by a particular moment uh, in time and and place but those, um, those moments allow people to connect with this incredible vitality in the tradition because the gods and the spirits are not distant. They're not far away. They come and they 
eat with us and they drink with us and they dance with us and they give us advice about how to make the most out of our lives. Michael Atwood Mason of the Smithsonian Institution, thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's great to be here. Michael Atwood Mason is also the author of the blog Baba Who, Baba Lou, a website all about Santeria that you can find on the net. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we're exploring another book about religion and spirituality. This one is called Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, the Skeleton Saint. We spoke with the book's author, Andrew Chestnut, a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University via Skype. Yes, Santa Muerte is a folk saint, meaning that she's not a canonized Catholic saint whose cult has been mushrooming in the past decade, uh, essentially from 2001-2002, to the point that in less than uh, 10 years, she now has millions of followers, both in Mexico, her home country, and here in the United States as well. She is uh, basically, if you look at her, she's basically represented as a female version of the Grim Reaper. In fact, in my my recently published book, Devoted to Death, I refer to her as the Grim Reapress. Why would someone want to honor this image, this icon? What is her power? Her, I would say it's, it's actually her powers. And, and I think that one of the greatest explanations for her astronomical popularity is her ability to multitask, to uh, grant miracles on, on multiple fronts. And so one of, the, one of the miracles, one of the hats she wears is as a narco saint, um, protecting many of the drug cartel members in Mexico. But at the same time, she's also an incredible uh, healer. Many of the people who go to her main shrine in the rough and tumble barrio of Tepito in Mexico City are looking f- to be healed of the various afflictions that are usually related to, to poverty uh, in, in urban Mexico. So she's a healer. She's also a, uh, a lawyer, a divine lawyer for those who are imprisoned, incarcerated in Mexico. And so she's, uh, in the spirit of the time, she's a uh, incredible, incredibly potent multitasker. Is she a real outgrowth of the drug war, or is there a different origin? Her, the rise in her cult corresponds and is somewhat related to the drug wars, but uh, I would say the genesis is is separate. She actually goes back to Spanish colonial times in Mexico, uh, and as a result of Spanish Catholic evangelization of the indigenous, so uh, she had existed clandestinely, basically as in a figure of the occult in Mexico, going back to Spanish colonial times. But it is true that her astronomical growth and her going from being a figure of the occult to now a public, very much public cult, does correlate to the rise in the narco industry in Mexico. So you're telling us that she's 600 years old or, or older 
as far as her, her representation in Mexico. Yeah, I, I, I argue in the book that essentially she is the Mexican version of the European Grim Reaper. Again, the Spanish Catholic Church brings over the figure of the Grim Reaper. In fact, in Spain, she was a female figure called La Parca, or the Parched One. They bring her over to the New World as a tool of evangelization of the indigenous people. And, of course, indigenous people interpret Christianity through their own cultural lens and end up kind of taking her as a saint uh, in, in her own right. So the genesis really is this confusion of the European Grim Reaper uh, and by the indigenous people here and kind of converting her into, into what she is today, a folk saint. Those who know Mexican culture a bit uh, are familiar with Dia de las Muertes. And, and so we, we see this image of death that is there in Mexican spiritualism. Why is it, do you think, that, that Mexicans seem to want to confront death in a much more open way in their spirituality? Uh, I, I think a lot of it is rooted in uh, pre-Columbian indigenous beliefs, rites, and rituals. In fact, um, that's an excellent question that, that uh, you pose, and, and I tend to get a lot, is the difference between Santa Muerte and Days of the Dead. Days of the Dead essentially are a syncretic ritual, a fusion of Aztec uh, worship, honoring the dead with the Catholic ritual of, of, days, of um, days of the Dead as well. So you have that, that correspondence, the correlation between Aztec uh, death worship, death rituals, and the Spanish Catholicism, the medieval Spanish Catholicism that came over to Latin America also had its own cult of the relics and bones and such. So there's a nice convergence in the importance of, of bones here uh, in Santa Muerte. I, I'm wondering about the reaction of the mainstream Catholic Church in, in Mexico to this icon and, and the modern rise of this icon. Um, has the Catholic Church always known about this for the past 600 years? Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yes. In fact, the first mention that we have of Santa Muerte comes from the annals of the Spanish Inquisition when on uh, two separate occasions in the 1790s, uh, inquisitors discover indigenous people in central Mexico venerating a figure that they actually refer to as La Santa Muerte or Saint Death. So yes, the church is known about her. Um, and in its recent uh, popularity and in incarnation, the Mexican Church, on s Catholic Church, on several occasions has condemned veneration and worship of Santa Muerte as, as satanic, basically making the argument that how can you as a Christian be venerating a figure of death when Jesus Christ came to give us new life? So kind of seeing this death as the antithesis I guess um, for those who are not familiar with Mexico and spirituality, um, I'm wondering how you squared the veneration of Santa Muerte with the veneration of uh, the Blessed Mother, um, of the other icons that um, the Virgin of Guadalupe um, that you see in Mexico and are very present in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And the really interesting issue here is that 
everybody whom I interviewed in Mexico self-identified as a Catholic and either didn't know or didn't care that the Catholic Church in Mexico had condemned Santa Muerte. So most of them tend to see Santa Muerte as a complementary aspect or part of their own Catholicism. It turns out that most of these people are not active actively practicing Catholics, at least in an institutional sense. But I, I think I think there's a special appeal to those people on the Mexican margins who have never felt at home or welcome in the Catholic Church, maybe because they're narcos, maybe because they're transvestite prostitutes. And so one of the mantras that you'll hear from devotees in Mexico is, oh, I adore Santa Muerte, I adore the skinny girl, La Flaquita, one of her main nicknames, because she doesn't discriminate. And in a society in which you have great chasms between rich and poor, the fact that her scythe is swung levelly at all Mexican heads and is an equalizing scythe, I think is extremely appealing to those people who have felt uh, discriminated or on the margins of both Mexican society and the Catholic Church as well. How does someone honor this particular saint, the saint of death? Do you light a candle, say a prayer in the traditional Catholic way, or are there different Yeah, so so much of the so much of the model of devotion really is based on on folk Catholicism, and so lots of people would have home altars uh, in which you have a statuette of Santa Muerte surrounded by votive candles. And despite the fact that many people say that she's a very jealous saint, um, you will often find her accompanied by other religious figures, and some of them actually. Uh, canonized Catholic saints. I've I've often found her uh, in the company, for example, of Saint Jude Thaddeus, who's also huge on the Mexican religious landscape. So the main thrust is, yes, she is a narco saint for some people in the Mexican cartels, but she's so much more than that. In all this research, have you come to believe in her too? (laughs) No, I have not. Sometimes I feel like she is animated because I've you know, I've lived with her for the last three, three years, but no, I'm, I'm not a devotee. You, you say that she's a multitasker. She, we've talked about the fact that she's an icon, a brand, a trend. Is there anything else I'm missing from my list? Uh, icon, trend, brand. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think she also fits into a very interesting equation of, of growing uh, religious competition particularly in Mexico. Um, her church actually, she, there was a, a, a church founded in Mexico City which operated legally for two years, 2003 to 2005. In 2005, it had its legal status rescinded, and so now it is against the law to actually found a Santa Muerte-based church in Mexico City, which I think actually lends itself to some of the occasional horrific abuses we've seen and apparent uh, sacrifices, human sacrifices made to Santa Muerte. So I think it actually, I think it actually is not in the interest of Mexican security and the Mexican state to, to have this cult uh, outlawed. So some of these mass killings that we've heard about in the drug war, those have been sacrifices to Santa Muerte? Some of them apparently have. There was a... 
there's a case actually in April in which which uh, got a lot of traction in the media in which I was quoted in which a extremely poor family in the uh, northern state of Sonora had apparently sacrificed three neighbors to Santa Muerte uh, believing that Santa Muerte was asking for human blood in exchange for giving them uh, treasure. Uh, and so that, yeah, that was kind of a big infamous case. And um, I, there have been others, but, you know, given the Mexican judicial system and such, it's always hard to know the veracity of these statements. But undoubtedly, there have been some cases of that. No doubt this also adds to her power and reputation. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. And also uh, added fodder for both Catholic and Protestant churches to condemn her as satanic if, if human sacrifices are being uh, made to her. Well, thank you, Dr. Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University. The author of Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, the Skeleton Saint, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for having me on, Rick. It's been a, a pleasure. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writers Jordan Derry and Colin Campbell, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>